Thank you tonight for joining us with us. We're, we took a break over the summer from Mark <clears throat> because so many of us were traveling and we didn't want to miss out on the sequence, but just a kind of a real quick review tonight, and I'm going to be quick because I want to pick right back up with Mark chapter 9, and I'm really glad that you've joined us tonight. And um, if you want a copy of the notes and you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, you can go to our website, woodland.church, and um, if you'll click there on sermons or messages, I forget what it's called, but if you'll look at it, there's the notes, and you can follow along with everything that we have there as well. And by the way, if you follow us out of town or out of state, I know we have a lot of folks that do that each week. If you'll email us, we'll be happy to email you a copy of the notes so that you have them each week, either before or after the service is one. Well, John chapter 1, we looked at how that, excuse me, Mark chapter 1, we looked at how that this is a gospel that's little different than the other three Gospels, and that is, this is Peter dictating to Mark. He's, Mark is the secretary, the Apostle Peter is the one that's giving this letter, dictating this letter. Number one, Peter is writing to a Roman audience. Matthew is really concerned about writing to the Jews. Luke has a heavy emphasis upon the Spirit's work. That's the reason we look at Luke and Acts together, because no two books of the Bible in the New Testament talk more about the Holy Spirit and the theology of the Holy Spirit than Luke and Acts do together. And then John is a very much a different book. It's a, it's, a, it's a book of theology, that yet it's one that is so easily grasped that John is, is probably the most loved of the four Gospels. My personal favorite as Mark. It's why I just always have loved since I was a kid the book of Mark because it's so full of action. John the Baptist prepares the way. You know the story. Mark wastes no time. Peter's wasting no time. He wants this Roman audience to understand. Jesus begins doing healing miracles and the religious police show up and rather than rejoicing over the teaching of the gospel, over rejoicing over the, the miracles that are happening, they start trying to fault fine with Jesus and Jesus just really doesn't cavitate. He doesn't give in to their religious fault-finding. We read one story of how that they even tore a roof up to let somebody down in the presence of Jesus. We looked at another story that caused a great deal of pain and grief, and I, I recommended that you watch The uh, Chosen so you could see just how this woman would have been treated. We, we know these things, but we don't feel them because... We live in a time where, thankfully, women and children receive a lot more respect than they would have in the Bible days, but because of her issue of blood, as the Bible calls it, she was considered very unclean, and how that Jesus wasn't calling her out to make a spectacle of her, Jesus was calling her to himself and pulling her faith out. And so you see not only the Son of God at work teaching and preaching, but you see the Son of God at work personally dealing with people and by the way, remember, there is, a, there is a, a religious leader there by the name of Jarius, and Jarius wants Jesus to come right now, and the, he's already taken a big risk by coming to Jesus because he knows the Sanhedrin, the religious police, they're really against Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, what he's doing. So he takes a risk with his career, he takes a risk with his calling, he takes a risk in his community. He comes to Jesus and then they come and tell him, says, don't trouble the teacher anymore, your daughter's dead, and Jesus tells him to have faith, and you know the rest of that story. It's just a powerful story. And we left off, if you want to get your Bibles and get your notes out with me tonight, we left off at, in Mark chapter 9, 
uh, the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus had just talked to them about he's going to die and be crucified and raise again from the dead. And you need to notice this in the book of Mark. I was looking on my notes, and I had never said this, but this is important to note. Jesus never talked about his death without also talking about his resurrection. And that's important to the rest of the story to remember. Years ago, I read a book by A.J. Jacobs. Has any of you read any of his books before? I knew that you had. (laughs) A.J. Jacobs wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically, one man's quest to try and follow all of the rules of the Old Testament. He chronicles his experiment where he tries to live for for one year, according to all those rules. He blows a shofar every the first of every month. He stones adulterers. When he meets people that he knows that's committing adultery, he picks up little pebbles and begins to throw them at them. Uh, you just have to know A.J. Jacobs. He is a, he's a fascinating guy. He didn't shave. He, he said this, though, and I thought this was very interesting. He said this in his book, and I think it's right at the very beginning. I think it's probably about page four or five. It's right at the very beginning. He said that in following these these commandments, 248 of them positive, 365 negative, he says, really, my relationship to the Jewish faith is about the same as that of an olive garden to an Italian restaurant. (laughs) You know, I would never have really appreciated that until I started traveling years ago. And I, Becky and I working in Europe, and we started eating in Italian restaurants Here in the States, when we would come home, the only Italian food we could find in our little hometown in Macon, Georgia, was the Olive Garden. It looked Italian. They played Italian music, but the food was anything but what we got in Italy or what we got in other parts of Europe. It had the look and the illusion of being an Italian restaurant, but it didn't have the heart of an Italian restaurant. And we got a wonderful Italian cook sitting right here that if you ever get invited to his table, you are in for a treat. But here's what I wrote down. I don't want to be the kind of Christian that looks like a Christian, plays Christian music, says Christian things, but doesn't have the heart of being a Christian. Do do you follow what I'm saying? If you've been to Italy, you know there's a big difference between Venetian food and Roman food and Roman food and Sicilian food. You know, you can taste a difference, and you don't go into these places that are designed for American tourists, you know, where there are hundreds of American tourists, and they've got all these bargains up there for you. You look for the little out-of-the-way mom-and-pop places for the locals eat, and I go in there, and they, all the waiters are always telling my wife why they need to, she needs to leave me and marry them. It's just a fun place to visit, you know, and to eat good food. Now, that I've said that, let me be real quick. I am an American. I am not an Italian. There are times when I want a KFC. There are times when I want a bucket of crispy fried chicken. There are times that I want a Starbucks for a good cup of coffee. And if I'm traveling late at night on the interstate, I don't want the rest area where I don't know who's pulled in there. I want the golden arches where I can find a a bathroom break and I can find a Coca-Cola or something to get and get back on the road at 11 o'clock at night. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I'm not necessarily knocking the franchises. I'm just saying that we have to understand that 
A McDonald's hamburger is nothing compared to the hamburger that you're going to put on your grill. And so what I want to look at is this next passage of Scripture because the disciples want to create a franchise faith rather than an authentic faith. And there's reason that Jesus says this very difficult saying here. If your eye offends you, gouge it out. You know, that's a tough saying, right? So, you know, you, we want to look at that and why did he say that? So let's start first tonight in John chapter 9. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our franchise or in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me, and anyone who is not against us is for us. Now, I don't expect you to remember this all the way back to June, but if you remember, we left off where the disciples had not been successful in casting out a demonic spirit from someone. And now they run into someone that's being successful because he's not in their group or in their franchise. They tell him to stop. Franchises are nice because if you ever go to one, uh, Becky and I did a wedding this last weekend, but we had to leave early to get back to church on time, and boy, did they have a dinner and a half there. I looked at that, and I said, Becky, I know what's between here and where we pick up the interstate again. I says, we're probably going to get a Culver's or a McDonald's or something like that, and all that good fruit in front of us, but when we pulled in, it was easy in and easy out. We pulled up. We got our fast food to go in the car. We got on the road. And it was like, this is just not good, you know. And I even tried shrimp thinking maybe shrimp. Don't get shrimp at Culver's, okay. It's just not the thing to do. It's easy in. It's easy out. But it's a part of a group that I knew I could get in there quickly. I could get out of there for a little bit of money and get back on the road. You see, what I want you to get from this passage tonight, passionate followers of Christ are people of conviction. We're people of conviction. We're not people of franchise faith. We're not looking for the easy way because Jesus calls us to take up a cross and to follow him. Jesus tells us even if we're going to be his followers, there are times that we're going to experience persecution and trials. What I have discovered, and I'm sure you've discovered, there are times that Jesus will take you places you don't want to go. And sometimes Jesus will put food on your plate that you don't want to eat. I took a group of almost 100 students to Argentina one time where we, were, we had three teams. We were planning a church. We were, we were um, building a, a, a radio station and a clinic, and then we were doing a, another city as well. And they put some food on our place down in Bariloche, which is a beautiful place, a beautiful city. They put some food on our plates, and our kids looked at it, and they looked at me, and I heard the murmur going around because I told them this very thing in Georgia at our campground in our nice air-conditioned cafeteria where I fed them steak and baked potatoes. I said, you may get something put on your plate that you don't want to eat. You need to remember, Jesus is putting that on your plate. And you don't want to offend the people we're trying to reach. And there is nothing that I've had. I'd rather eat rat again than to eat cold canned tuna fish and cold mashed potatoes, okay? Sometimes he just puts stuff on your plate that you don't want to eat. You remember when Peter got the vision of clean food? 
do you think he might have prayed differently about pork the first time he had bacon? Was it Martin Luther that said, or was it Benjamin Frank? Somebody said, bacon is proof that God loves us. Because when you walk into a house or to a restaurant and you smell bacon, you just begin salivating. So we're people of conviction. We're people, secondly, our hearts have been transformed. Our hearts and our minds have been transformed by Christ. Fazoli's was a little Italian restaurant that when we traveled, we would stop at because our kids ate free there. Any of you ever do those kids eat free restaurants? So we'd stop there at Fazoli's. Fazoli's in Olive Garden, though, just do not have an Italian heart. Lukewarm Christians don't have a Christ-like heart. Religious people don't have a Christ-like heart. The Bible talks about having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. You're not going to fool an Italian with an Olive Garden. You're not going to fool an Italian with a Pizza Hut pizza. You know, if you want to taste the difference, try one of our new local restaurants here, and I love those folks who on uh, Francesca's, Francesca's on Telegraph Road. Uh, that's real, authentic Italian pizza, and you will love it, but it's so different than a Pizza Hut pizza. You see, following Jesus is more than illusion. It's more than the paintings like you would have in an olive garden. Following Jesus is a matter that Christ comes to live within you. It's a matter of, think of it this way, two words, implantation and transformation. Christ comes to live in our hearts. We have the heart of Jesus within us. And then because Jesus is in us, he transforms these old sinful lives of ours into lives like him. Passionate followers of Christ are people of living water. Passionate followers of Christ are people of living water. And what I mean by that is we're not funnels. Funnels narrow, funnels constrict, funnels control. But a fountain is something completely different. A fountain springs up. It, it opens away. It, if you've ever seen where a fountain has opened up underneath the ground, one of my favorite stories of this was during the war between the states. Uh, one of my friends from Oregon was coming to preach for us in Georgia, and when I picked him up, he said, Dennis, my uncle was a prisoner of war. My great-great-uncle was a prisoner of war in Georgia during the Civil War. And our family has shared the story about there was a bad drought. It was hot. People were dying of thirst. And he said that they prayed, and all of a sudden, a spring opened up in the ground. Are you familiar? I said, oh, yeah, I can take you right there. It's called Providence Spring. And so I took him to that national park in southern Georgia and, show, and he just cried like a baby, and he said these words, it's real, it's real. There were times I heard the story, and I said, that couldn't have happened, but God still answers prayer. Can you say amen to that? And he opened up that spring, and it transforms everything, and a spring goes in all kinds of different directions. There's one source, but it goes in all kinds of different directions. Bernard of Clairvaux said these words, if thou hast wisdom, thou shalt prove a fountain spring and not a channel. The disciples were unsuccessful. This man that they wanted to stop from doing ministry had success because Jesus was at the center of what he was doing. And the fact that Jesus hadn't called him to be one of the 12 didn't mean that he was not one of the 70 and didn't mean he was not one of the 500 that later 
doesn't mean that he was not one of the multitudes that followed Christ, but he was not one of those that Jesus called to be disciples. And we need to recognize there are different ways that people serve God and God calls people together. The danger of a franchise faith, the danger, and I was praying with a pastor this morning about thinking that you are an ROTC church, the real one true church, that you're the only church around. Your denomination is the best denomination or this or that or the other is that we become self-important rather than becoming humble like little children. We become self-important rather than selfless. You see, Jesus doesn't, listen, and this is important. I believe in miracles. You know that. I believe that God still heals the sick. I believe in all those promises of God. But Jesus never defines discipleship by miracles. He always defines discipleship by characteristics like humility, generosity, love, and kindness, and so forth. Do, do you follow what I'm saying? And we get so impressed in North America sometimes with power and with bigness that we don't look for the things that Jesus looked for. Jesus said these amazing words, anyone who is not against us is for us. When you're saved, Jesus says there is a spring, a, a river of life that begins to flow out of you. Jesus is the headwaters of that spring. And you know, the way you keep that fresh is by just reading your Bible daily and letting the Word of God flow through you. Number four, passionate followers of Christ are people who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. That's important. Bought by the blood of the Lamb. You see, you buy a franchise. There are things today called Mac churches, and I'm not going to get up here and throw rocks, but there are things that call Mac church where you buy a certain plan, you work this certain plan, and if you do it and, and you've got this down leak that you're supposed to experience the success of that another large church. Churches are organic. They develop in their community. They develop as God reveals himself through one another. The Bible is very clear that you can't buy God. You've been bought by God by his blood. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. I want to read from the message here. Your life is a journey. You must travel with a deep consciousness of God. Underline that phrase, a deep consciousness of God. So your life's a journey. You travel it with a deep consciousness of God. But you also want to keep this in mind, Peter is saying. It costs God plenty to get you out of that dead end empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished sacrificial lamb. So let's move to the second portion of our uh, passage that we're looking at. In Mark. We're closing out Mark 9 tonight. Jesus went on to say, if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. Now remember, he had set a child, pre that's where we stopped, he had set a child previously in the midst of them, okay? So they're still very conscious of this. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusted me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, Cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one than to be thrown into hell with two feet. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live at peace with each other. Very quickly here, passionate followers of Christ are much more concerned with the little ones than they are with the fragile eagles, egos of egotist. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. The egos of the disciples were getting in the way. This man, I dare say, was probably one of the little ones that Jesus was talking about. Young in his faith, not in that inner circle of 12 that they were privileged to be. And why should our egos be fragile if Christ is the Lord of our lives? Why should we be so sensitive if Christ is the Lord of our lives? It's one of the reasons why here at Woodland we try to help you discover not only your, your personality to a disc test, how God's going to use your personality, but your spiritual gifts as well. The way into the kingdom is to turn from God, is to turn to God from your sin the same way that a child places its faith and trust in an adult. Have you ever seen those videos on YouTube where a leopard or a lion or a cheetah is confused when a fawn or a baby deer tries to nuzzle up next to it? And you know eventually that lion's going to kill it, but it's confusing to that predator of what's happening. What that little fawn is doing is it's trusting the larger animal the way it's always trusted its mother or the herd, not knowing what's going to happen. And the disciples were in danger of letting their egos exclude people rather than include people. My Greek professor taught us, and I'll never forget it. He said, the gospel is much more inclusive than it is exclusive. And that was in a day before we talked about inclusion the way we talk about inclusion today. But it's just simply that whosoever comes... Now, we need to look at this next verse before I deal with this next point. It'll be up on the screen. I think it's in your outline as well. And we're going to talk about the cutting your hand off, gouging your eye out, cutting your foot off. Jesus is not talking about physically maiming yourself. There were some early Christians that did that. There was one uh, by the name of Origen because he was trying to deal with lust that he emasculated himself. Well, this is not what Jesus is talking about. It's not what God wants for our lives. You know, if you gouge out your eye, lust is a matter of the heart. Do you remember back, some of you might remember this, back in the 70s, a lot of evangelicals were taking shotguns and blowing, shooting up their TVs, you know, because, you know, the shows on TV then were so bad. And so they, would and they were taking, and people were being encouraged, shoot your TVs, kill that devil tube in your house. You know, friends, hear me on this. You can blow up all the TVs you want, but that doesn't change what's in your heart. You know, if what's in your heart is right, you'll change the clicker when it needs to change. Maybe in the 70s we didn't have clickers, but anyway. <laughs> so look at this next verse. Since you are the people of the Lord your God, 
Never cut yourselves or shave your hair above your foreheads in mourning for the dead. Jesus, the Bible never was in favor of people scarification or, or doing those sorts of things themselves. Matter of fact, in my travels in Africa, a lot of, of believers that I met, it's, it's horrible to see the kind of scarification on their bodies that happened before they gave their lives to Jesus. Passionate followers of Christ, number six, take drastic action to prevent people from stumbling. Remember those little ones we just talked about? We take drastic action. We want to cut off attitudes. We want to cut off anything that we have in our lives that is excluding or looking down on people or even causing them to stumble. Jesus one time said of the the Pharisees, he says, you're making them twice the sons of hell of what they really are. Now, that was hyperbole. I don't know how you become twice the son of hell. But because of what they were doing, they were literally causing these little ones these, that Jesus was trying to reach to stumble. And he told me, he says, you can't even keep the own laws that you're adding to the law of God. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 5, he says, but I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you. And then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. Now, they knew what he was talking about. Gehana, which is the word used for hell, not Hades. Gehana is the word used for hell. That was the valley that all the garbage, that good King Josiah had taken the valley of Gehana. He had transformed that into the garbage dump so that it could be burned and kill all the worms and the maggots that were coming out there and causing such a stench. I've walked that valley. Here's the point. That's the same imagery Jesus uses when talking about hell. And he says, it would be better for you or me before we cause a new convert or before we cause a child or someone to stumble. And what we should fear is God and follow him the way Christ did. Number seven, passionate followers of Christ make our choices with eternity in mind. Remember what we read from from 1 Peter using uh, the message tonight? We're traveling a road with a deep consciousness of God. We know that one day we're going to stand before the Lord. We know that one day we're going to be in heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 13, the Bible tells us, Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. What's he talking about? Do you remember as we closed it, and I'm out of time, do you remember we talked about everyone being salted? and then have the quality of salt with you. Salt, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament had to be salted before they were offered to the Lord. Salt not only had a way of purifying, but salt also had a way of preserving and making flavorful as well. Becky and I were watching a documentary the other night about salt. I wanted to understand just a little bit more. Salt used to be more valuable than gold. There are entire cities and countries that were built upon salt and we were looking at buildings that are still in good shape and then ruins where they were showing the salt, barrels of salt, and salt like some people do dollar bills today. You see, you know, rap stars walking around with a dollar bill or something around their day. Salt was a sign of, of, of success. Jesus says everybody will be, so, all of us, there are trials and testings that are going to come our way as followers of Jesus. But those trials and those testings shouldn't make us bitter. They shouldn't cause us to doubt. Instead, it should be the kind of salt that so flavors us, so preserves us, that we live peaceably with one another and not quarreling with one another. Isn't this an amazing passage tonight? 
And I think it helps us to understand why Jesus would use sometimes such drastic language because he wants us to understand how important lost people are to him, but how important new converts are to him. And you can do that without compromising the gospel as long as Jesus is at the center of it all. There are times when I like a franchise, but by and large, if I go to an olive garden, I'm going in the wintertime because I like potato soup and salad. And that's the only place I can get potato soup and salad around here. There's nothing Italian about that as far as I know. That's like going to my mama's house for lunch. God bless you. Good night. Thanks for being with us this evening.